0: Following Jesus can be an unnerving experience. And, and that may surprise some of you. Everything in us wants to frame following Jesus in ways that are more attractive, more appealing, more safe, and more comfortable. And yet, following Jesus uh, never fits into such tidy categories. Jesus challenges our assumptions. He challenges our values. He challenges our narratives. He's challenging our very way of life. And then he calls us into these countercultural ways or ways of, of humility, sacrifice, and suffering, where following Jesus requires uh, trust and obedience and courage. And my suspicion is I'm not alone in what I'm about to share with you. But throughout my life, I have questioned Jesus, I've resisted him, I've made excuses, and I've complained that it's just too challenging. But then I realized that dying to self in our American Samaria will always be challenging. And I've, but, I, but I've concluded something that I, I find, I, I hope is hopeful. But I've concluded that our resistance and our reluctance to, to following Jesus has less to do with the fact that we're stubbornly sinful. Although as true as that is. I think most of us who follow Jesus are simply afraid of what Jesus is calling us to be and do. We're afraid of letting go of everything that we think defines our identity and our well-being. Afraid of the changes we may need to make to our lives. Afraid of what our friends and family will think of us. A few years ago, I read a, a book that I think beautifully captured, and the title of the book was A Failure of Nerve. And that captures it, doesn't it? when we begin to understand what Jesus calls us to. You see, most of us, and I believe this is true of most of you as well. Most of us who know Jesus really do desire to follow him well. That's at the heart, we we, we desire that, we want that, we long for that. We're just afraid of what it asks of us. Well, the conversation we're gonna examine this morning takes place in in response to some of this, and it may be one of the most well-known, most loved stories of Jesus, often referred to as the prodigal son. But I'm going to give you a a perspective that I hope shifts your understanding just a little bit. If you have your Bibles or your phones, turn to Luke chapter 15. And I want to begin by, by talking briefly about the setting of the story, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Remember, Jesus is traveling on this little mini five or six day road trip through Samaria. And as Jesus travels through Samaria, the people who were most curious about him were those who were the religious outsiders. And they were the ones who were stepping in to pursue Jesus to have conversations with him. Um, These outsiders of the faith, Luke calls them the tax collectors. Tax collectors were maybe the most despised people because they took advantage of people. Tax collectors and sinners, they were wildly curious about Jesus. And that didn't always sit well with religious leaders who had devoted their lives to following God. So verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that is spoken in a very derogatory way. How dare he? They didn't know what to make of Jesus being so comfortable with this crowd. Jesus had an ease about him. And all the conversations he had with people who were so far away from the faith. And the hospitality and kindness he extended to them. This group of people had been taught their entire life to keep a safe distance from everything and everyone who might put your faith or your character at risk. Stand back, stand back, stand back. Too much is at stake. I'm interested in these folks, these Pharisees and teachers of the law who appear in in Luke's travel narrative. It raises a lot of questions for me. We know a lot about them from the rest of the Gospels, but why were they following Jesus on this trip? Were they looking to find fault in Jesus? Maybe so. I have a thought, and I I won't go to the wall with it. I have a thought there's another possibility that they might have been religious leaders who were tired of what they had grown up with and who had joined Jesus through Samaria because they too were curious about Jesus. They were open. Maybe a few of them were, were even quietly, secretly followers of Jesus who had begun their discipleship with Jesus and who were beginning to, to pivot away from the life they knew apart from Jesus. But, but now following Jesus for just a couple of days, all of their assumptions were being challenged, their beliefs and practices were being challenged, and, and maybe they were having second thoughts. Not sure they could change to engage in such conversations with sinful Samaritans. And that's when the muttering and the complaining began. As it so often does, when insiders lose sight of outsiders, the complaining starts. Well, the complaining prompted Jesus to tell a series of stories. The first two are very brief. We're not going to read them. The parable of the lost sheep. You remember the story. Imagine you have a hundred sheep. One wanders away. Don't you leave the 99. Go looking for the one. And when you have found it, you return home. You throw a party with all your family and friends to celebrate. The second story, the parable of the lost coin. A woman has 10 coins and she loses one. She turns her house upside down looking for that one coin. When she finds it, she gathers her family and friends together and throws a party to celebrate. And then Jesus told the most memorable story about a lost son. Verse 11 There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. This younger son asked for his inheritance while his father was still living. There was nothing in Middle Eastern culture at the time which would have ever encouraged any son to make such a request of a father it would have been an extraordinary insult that essentially communicated, dad, I cannot wait for you to die. Can I have what belongs to me now? Must have crushed the father. And and that's that's what makes this so remarkable that, that the father agreed to such an ask. Now, something we often overlook in the story the father also gave the older brother his share of the estate. He didn't refuse it. He took it, silently kept the money. Becomes important a little bit later. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and he set off for a distant country. Now, understand what's going on here. He is now leaving his family, his home, in a very hurtful way this is not launching your kid to college or launching your kid to the next season of life with all the hope and encouragement and belief in the future this is a this is a tearing of the fabric in the family and those of you who have parented those of us who are parenting a child who has walked away from our family or walked away from the faith in a a hurtful way We fully understand what this father experienced the anger, the confusion, the tears, the sleepless nights, the self condemnation, the sense of failure as a father, and of course, wondering and worrying about your child's well being. You see, this story touches something deep in all of us, it's all too familiar. He goes on. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, of course, set off for a distant country, and he squandered his wealth in wild living. He just broke broke out. He broke free. Finally, finally he was free. He could do what he wanted. And once free of his family with plenty of money, the son determined to enjoy the fruit of it and he indulged every desire. But the money ran out. And after he had spent everything, verse 14, there was a severe famine in the whole country. And he began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The bottom dropped out. And this younger son descended into his worst nightmare. During the famine, he barely survived, reduced to feeding pigs and begging. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven, or heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Desperate, humiliated, ashamed. Luke tells us he came to his senses. And he came to his senses when he began to remember thoughts of home and how well his dad provided for him and how well his father provided for all of the the people who worked for him. And, And we see this marvelous lens that the hardnesses of life, failure in particular, become one of the best teachers. It reorders our perspective. And this young man had his perspective completely reordered. So he decides to return to his father in in brokenness. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. But his shame led him to thought what he thought was a reasonable conclusion. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Hire me to be like one of your hired servants. Shame does that, doesn't it? Even when we come to a good realization of what needs to change, shame leads us to question who we are and where we stand with people. And the son comes to the conclusion, because of what I've done, I'm no longer worthy to be loved. I've just, I've screwed it up that bad. My dad could never love me again. So just take me back as a hired, a hired servant, an employee. At least I can work to repay all the money I've lost. And maybe over, over years, I, I can earn back your respect and your trust. Because grace wasn't expected. Certainly wasn't deserved. But his return home was complicated. It was complicated by the hurtful way in which he left and the ways he had lived lived while he was was away. Of course, restoring the relationship with his father was important, but, but the older brother would likely resent his return. And here's an insight that is fresh for me. Because... It would also be difficult for the son to return back to his family and his community. You see, we tend to read these stories through very individualized perspectives. And the Middle Eastern culture was never like that, it was always a community experience. Uh, there was a Jewish custom called Kesatzah. And if a son left his family, And sold and squandered his inheritance, especially to a non-Jew, to a Gentile. He would be completely disowned from the family and any future consideration by the community. So here's what would happen. Uh, Once it was discovered that someone had been so foolish or irresponsible, the community would gather together as a full community and bring all the children with them. This was a generational damage being done to someone's reputation. They were gonna make an object lesson as a way of instilling in people, we don't do this to family. We don't do this to our community. They'd bring everyone together. They would fill glass jars with corn and nuts and then together they would throw the glass into the center and scatter them publicly. It was a public declaration that the individual was now officially cut off. A type of community discipline now historians tell us that the practice of Ketsatsa had, had likely ended by the first century and didn't conclude after that, but would have still been present during Jesus' life. Now Jesus' story in Luke 15 doesn't mention Ketsatsa, and the circumstances appear to be different, but it gives us an insight into the solidarity that existed between the extended family and the local community. And what awaited the son as he returned home and how complicated this this was going to be. This younger son's coming home would be humiliating on every level, met with culturally accepted anger and rejection for the ways he had insulted his father. A young man would pay a high, high price in returning home. He knew that. But remember, he was at the end of himself. Where else did he go? Jesus' story doesn't provide us with any time markers. So we don't know how long the son had been away. But whatever the length of time was, it's not hard to imagine that the father probably expected the son's adventure to end in disappointment. Maybe failure. Not sure he'd ever see his son again. And then the story pivots. And while the son was still a long way off and was heading towards the village, the father saw him. And filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and began to kiss him. I want us to try to envision what's going on here. When he saw his son on the edge of the village, He was overwhelmed by emotion. And his response tells us that this father had likely prayed and waited and hoped for this moment for years. It was all built up and then it just burst. But if the father saw him coming back into the village, so did other villagers. And maybe a crowd began to gather. I'm using some informed imagination and maybe a crowd began to gather you see this father was fully aware of how this son was going to be treated by the community he knew he had heard the stories already how he would be mocked by the a crowd that would gather as word kind of flashed across the village that the son was coming home and and that, that's why the father running to the son is so dramatic I don't believe this was a private moment. It was dramatic not only to the son who he was welcoming home, but it was dramatic to the community as well. And I can even imagine that he had to run through a small crowd of people on his way to the son. And in the culture of Jesus' day, most would have thought that, that a father running through a crowd to, a, to, to, to welcome back a son who had betrayed him so deeply was humiliating and beneath the father. And so he was, he was kind of blowing past all the cultural traditions. I mean, if, if, if this is done correctly in, in the day and the mind of people, this son needs to run to the father, fall on his knees and beg for forgiveness. But the father runs to him. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. Didn't make him grovel. Didn't lecture him. Didn't shame him. The son didn't hear from his dad. I, I knew you'd come crawling back once the money ran out. Didn't hear. Of course you can come back, but it's only on these terms. There were no conditions. Nothing, nothing, nothing could have prepared this son for his father's response. That's the impact of experiencing grace. It catches us off guard and takes our breath away. And then the son began speaking what he had been rehearsing for weeks. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And overwhelmed by grace, the father stops him and says, you don't need to say anything more. You're home. And now imagine this scene. Imagine this father and son, arm in arm, maybe his arms are around his son, walking through the crowd together. And they're hushed. His son now under the protective care of his father's full acceptance. And rather than experiencing the anger he may have deserved and expected, the son witnessed and experienced an undeserved, unexpected, and very public display of love and grace. And then once they arrived home, verse 22, the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him probably the father's, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, symbols of honor, visible evidence, not only of forgiveness, but restoration, gifts of grace lavished on someone who deserved them least. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's have a feast and celebrate. Now, killing the fattened calf meant that most, if not all, of the entire village would be invited to this event. This was a public gathering now. This was going to be a feast. Normally killing the fattened calf was reserved for the marriage of an oldest son or or when a dignitary arrived. This was an extraordinary honor for the son. And you can imagine what's going through his mind as he experienced what he thought he didn't deserve. And once the crowd had gathered the father quiets the crowd and gets everyone's attention and and he says, I've got something to announce to everyone. The son of mine was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost and he was found. And then the party broke out. Now, Jesus' first three stories The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son served to do something. They were lowering the defenses of the listeners. Everyone enjoys a good story with a good ending. Something of value being lost, followed by a search, found, followed by a celebration. Who doesn't enjoy a story like that? The fourth story was very different. And everything in this chapter pointed to this story. The older brother appeared where he did in the story to heighten the comparison between the two sons. Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field. Uh, We wonder why it was the older son... um, Didn't understand why the celebration was taking place. Surely he too would have been invited, which suggests something else was going on. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of his servants, asked him what was going on. I I believe he knew. And by the time he arrived, he was late to the party. Food was being served, music was blaring, people were dancing. But rather than enjoying the party, he's suspicious and he asked one of his servants what this celebration was for. Your brother, your brother's come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And and the response of this older brother is deeply, deeply troubling. He became angry and refused to go in. And here's the tragic, tragic irony of this familiar story. The older son, the son who believed he was more responsible than the younger son, his younger brother, is now humiliating his father. And while his father is making a statement of forgiveness, the older son is going to make a statement of his own. You see, had he just entered the house, angry as he might be, had he just entered the house and joined the party, he would have at least honored his father's desire. And if he had an issue with his dad, he could have privately taken it up and said, Dad, this confuses me on every level. I have no idea why you did what you just did. But he didn't do that. Middle Eastern culture held high regard for the public position of a father in the community, which made the older son's actions extremely, and I think intentionally, insulting. And now, the relationship, and here's the piece of the story that we sometimes miss. The relationship between the older son and his father is torn more deeply than what has taken place with the younger son. And yet, for the second time in the same day, the father pursues with humility and another unexpected display of love. His father went to him and he pleaded with him. And again, I don't think this is a private moment. I think guests are watching this thing. And what follows is heartbreaking. Uh, You know, the, the younger son was so stunned by the humility his father displayed by a gesture of unexpected grace and love. It's reasonable for us as a reader to expect that this demonstration to the older son would produce the same result but it didn't. Rather than celebrating, he complained. Remember verse one, he complained. He answered his father, verse 29, all these years, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat. Had given him half of his estate. <laughs> All these years, you've never given me anything. But when this, and, and listen to the language, he doesn't say, when my brother comes home, he says, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you fill the fat and calf for him. And he accused his father of not appreciating his years of loyalty by honoring this irresponsible son of yours. You know, I I, I think about this as a dad, you know, and, and we would expect the father to be a bit defensive at that point. I'm quite sure I would have been, if not completely furious at the self-righteous arrogance of this older son. Whereas he had a broken son returning with the other guy, his his other son, there was no brokenness here, just arrogance. And yet there's no criticism, there's no judgment, there's no rejection. Just affection. My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is already yours. We had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours, and notice the play on words, this brother of yours, he was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. And what I love about this story, this father would never apologize for extending grace. See, now we back up. and Let's bring it all together. Because this story is a cry for religious insiders, you and me, to understand and extend grace. I mentioned a few moments ago that Jesus is earlier three stories all ended the same way something of value followed by a search something of value found followed by a celebration we're never told how the older son responded to his father's invitation did he ever join the party we don't know The same lost found story but with no ending. We're left hanging. And in this series of stories in Luke 15 each succeeding story tightens the focus. First it was one of a hundred. Then it was one of ten. Then it was one of two. And now it's just one. And all the attention is focused on this remaining older brother and the story ended. And we wonder, is Jesus not going to finish the story? (laughs) What became of the the older son? Remember I I began with saying following Jesus can be unnerving. Unnerving. More and more as I reflect on Jesus' conversations, something is becoming more and more clear to me. And that is the utter uniqueness of Jesus' life and leadership. He does not fit into our categories, He is utterly unique in what he calls us to. And, and the tragic thing is that very few people around us today, sometimes even within our churches, very few people are going to help us understand the uniqueness and the way Jesus leads in today's world. And how upside down it is and how counterintuitive it is and how countercultural it is. And then I have this thought. Maybe the thought is a hope. Maybe... One of the Pharisees who had complained earlier about Jesus eating with sinners, when Jesus gets to the end of the story and he doesn't finish it, he's sobered by a sudden insight and he thinks to himself, oh my gosh, Jesus is talking about me. (laughs) I'm the older brother. Maybe a few others. Realized it as well that day. And maybe that day, a few moved past the self righteousness of older sons in a spiritual family who have forgotten what it was like to be lost and found. It was so long ago. They've forgotten what it was like to be forgiven and restored, they have forgotten what it was like to experience undeserved grace. And maybe a few said, oh man, oh man. And then I have this hope that maybe a few of us today would see ourselves in the older son. Eugene Peterson writes in Tell It Slant, For as long as we hold on to any pretense of having it all together, we are prevented from deepening and maturing in the Christian faith. For as long as we avoid recognition of our lostness, we are prevented from experiencing the elegant profundities of foundness. And for as long as we insist on maintaining safe moral grids in which we always know where we stand and where everyone else stands, these poses of self-sufficiency, we disenfranchise ourselves from the company of the found sheep, the found coin, the found brother, and celebrating angels. You see, a story, this story without an ending, invites you and I to provide the ending, And so I leave you with this question. What story will our story write? What ending will our story write? Will it be like the younger son? Broken, experiencing. Some of you, some of you are younger sons right now. Or will it be like the father? Willing to extend undeserved grace to people whose lives don't deserve it? Or most pointedly, is it like the older son? And we're among those who've grown way too comfortable for way too long. And we've forgotten what it's like to be lost and found. What will our story be? How will we write the ending? It's a great question, isn't it? Father, thanks for stories like this. They crack our heart open. We're grateful. But Father, it pierces, pierces deeply. It was intended to. It's, it's intended to challenge all of our assumptions and all of our practices and all the ways that we grow so comfortable and so stale as religious insiders. God, break us. Bring us to our senses. And may we write a different ending, a good ending, an ending that displays the Father's heart. In Jesus' name.